0: so we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16 again today. Or not again today, but picking up where we left off. Uh, as, as was last week, it's, it's really right in the middle. We're, we've broken this passage into three sections. It's right in the middle of a context that's difficult for us to just step into. So as a result of that, we need to begin reading all the way back in uh, verse uh, 7. Just to just to continue to, to get the feel and the flow of the thoughts we could we could go all the way back into uh, verse one, but for the sake of this morning, I think we can start back in verse seven and pick up there we'll read through we'll just get our minds wrapped around that again, uh, and then we'll we'll step into verse twelve through sixteen and that'll be our focal uh, focal passage this morning as we study so uh, i'm going to go ahead and pray for us now just as we step towards the word so that we can read, take a bit to to look and highlight some things, and then we can uh, read again. uh, Just to center our hearts now around the word, let's pray. Father, we do pray for your your presence by your spirit with us now to to shape us, to mold us, to challenge us where we need to be challenged, to encourage us where we need to be encouraged, just to do the work that only you can do by your spirit through the power of your word. I pray that our, our hearts would be sensitive to this, that our our minds would be focused, um, and that ultimately, father, that you would remove me um, from the equation. I, I know I have to speak, I know I have to say words, but that my own opinions, my own uh, my, my own issues wouldn't w- wouldn't hinder uh, your word being preached this morning. I, I just pray that you that you would work in might and power. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, here we are. So we're going to, like I said, we're going to pick it back up in uh, the passage that we started into last week or that we were studying last week in verse 7. We'll read, look at it a little bit just to get our minds around it. And then we'll jump into verse 12. So it says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss, everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul clearly based on this passage Paul clearly treasures Christ over everything else. There's no close comparison in his life. He counts everything else as rubbish. We looked at that word it could be it could be dung, it could be some rotted food. It's it's just abhorrent stuff, things that we seek to put away from us because we recognize that they're just disgusting, and and, and in his mind, in comparison to Christ, he's not saying that there's absolutely no value in anything else in the world, but in comparison to Christ, in contrast to Christ, nothing comes close, and contextually, he says the word everything, everything, I count all things, right, like that's the emphasis, now contextually, we looked at it, we could see that that based on the resume that he had previously shared, he could be meaning things, at least things like family lineage, heritage, denominational affiliation. He was a Pharisee, right? Um, uh, religious sincerity. As to the as to sincerity or as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. His own self-righteous works. He was blameless in his own eyes, according to the law. Everything, all of these things, and, and likely everything else in his life, he's counting as rubbish. He's, he's saying it's trash compared to the treasure of gaining... Jesus. It's the key, I think, to Paul's joy. In fact, I would suggest that if we don't understand that passage that we studied last week, we don't understand why Paul is rejoicing so consistently through this letter. I mean, if you think about it, if you just consider it for just a minute, where the letter starts and he's rejoicing over the Philippian church. He's rejoicing even though he's in prison. He's rejoicing that Christ is proclaimed even though those that are proclaiming it are causing him trouble. He's rejoicing and he's going to go on to say in, in a few passages that he's going to rejoice with little and he's going to rejoice with a lot. He, he's just going to be a person who rejoices because he counts Christ the treasure. he, Regardless of what else he has in his life, regardless of how little or how much he has in his life, he has Christ. He has the greatest treasure. And as a result, he can't help but rejoice, because his value system has been so radically re-engineered, so radically reshaped by having Jesus, by, by, by the righteousness of Christ that comes through the law, by the by the desire for the resurrection that gives its way to eternal life and, and an eternity in the presence of his creator and Savior, now i think I, I, I think it 's easy for us to recognize and, and correlate the the, the the connection between having joy and having Jesus as that preeminent treasure in our life. I, I think we we can do that I, I think that we recognize that, and I think it 's easy to even understand why paul's so joyful even though his life is so difficult in this season when we when we put it in that place i I just don't know that we always think about it i don't know that we always consider or always connect that practically in the way we live for example i i think i've been open about this maybe it's been a bit since i've talked about it but i have this whole deep rooted deep-seated desire to be affirmed and liked i want to be everybody's friend i've grown enough in that to know that i don't really care if you're my true friend just as long as you're at least willing to act like a facebook friend right so that you affirm me when i feel like i need affirming and you never say anything negative to me i'm willing to settle for the lie as long as you make me feel good that's how twisted and broken my sinful nature continues to be so last week i know I know last week I pressed on some sacred cows. I actually kicked a couple, right? I know it was direct. I know it was strong. I think Paul's language in this passage is strong. But because of my fear of man issues, because of my desire for affirmation, and, and, and mind you, I meant to actually thank you when I was doing the announcements. Thank you for sticking around. For those of you that participated in the surprise party afterwards, after the irony of a surprise party after that sermon does not escape me, right? There's leadership at a level that's, uh, this is not organizational leadership. I didn't get to walk away and hide and wrestle with these things after such a strong sermon. I got to interact with the people that I had just pressed on your sacred cows and that is a very humbling thing and I was nervous the whole time and I, I don't know if it showed. I really just wanted to crawl away because I really just want to be light that robbed me of a moment of joy because jesus isn't my greatest king i couldn't fully be present in a party that was meant to be something good and honorable you get what i'm saying because when jesus isn't our greatest treasure and something else becomes our greater treasure we begin to lose joy see i didn't press on that stuff because i wanted you to I love you enough, I want enough for you, that Jesus is your greatest treasure. I I want that for all of us. When when I am resting in my own power, when when I am seeking to control circumstances of my own doing more than trusting in his providential care, I don't experience joy like I can when I trust that my king is a beneficial, benevolent, loving, good, and gracious king. When when I seek to pursue my own agenda, and this has happened a number of times in my life, when I seek after my own agenda and go after what I deem is best and right and good, even if I know it's not what God would have for me, I don't typically wake up joyful, I typically wake up with regret, with doubt, with frustration, because I'm not able to control and able to get all the stuff I want, right? I, the reality is, is where, when we're not in a place where, where Paul is saying he's at and ultimately he's going to call us to be, sometimes, so, so, sometimes just the reality is, is that we need to realize this. Paul isn't writing this so that the Philippians have a hard time dealing with stuff. Paul is writing this so that they can rejoice with him. Just the whole thrust of this book, the whole thrust of this letter of the Bible is to be able to rejoice together in the glory of our good King Jesus. Last week I told you the story of the two men, about uh, of the two guys that that all in in West Africa, in Senegal, in in the village we're working with, that all they can see is the loss. What I long for for us as a church is all that we can see is what we've gained. There is nothing to lose anymore because we have Jesus. But even for us, even for us as a people who, who I know, who I know your stories. I know what you're wrestling with. I, I know the things that are going on. Even if I don't know you well, I know something about you that I, I know what you long for. I know you come in week, out, week in, week out, that you participate in the ministries here because you long to know the glory of the gospel and see it do its work in your life. I know you long for that. But even for us, it is a difficult thing. It is a difficult to actually live this out every day it's easier to theorize it to talk about it to theologize it to justify and to to find ways around it rather than deal with it faced on it's easier to do that than to actually put it into practice the reality is that we're always we're always struggling with competing affections that distract us from God's glory, that that we pursue more than God's goodness and that we trust in more than His grace or His power. But the fact that we will always struggle, the fact that this is not going to be easy, the fact that we're going to have to face some of the realities of our sinfulness is not a reason to stop. Paul sets out for us this beautiful picture. This is the treasure well, what are we going to do with it? This is where he turns. This is where he's going to go in these next verses, but he doesn't start at a place of victory. He starts at a place where he's going to admit himself he's not there yet. So that's where we're going to to be. We know what's ahead of us. We know what the treasure is, but what do we do because we know we're not there yet? We've got these competing affections. We've got these things that, that, that... distract us from the glory of God. We've got these things that we pursue more than God's goodness. We've got these things that we trust more than God's grace. What do we do? What would Paul have us do? Well, let's pick it up, verse 12. So here he is, I'm at, after the, the, the resurrection of Christ, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect. we have attained. All right, Paul has has some things figured out, right? He recognizes Christ is the greatest treasure. He recognizes that, in contrast, everything is lost. He's got some stuff figured out. He can rejoice even in the face of difficulty. He's sitting in prison, writing this letter, being uh, afflicted by other believers who are preaching Christ from selfish motives. He is He is pouring his life out for the Philippian church and for others, right? Like he's talking about pouring himself out for their faith. He's given himself up. He's dying to himself and all that he might do on his own for the good of other people. He's given himself to this, and yet he still says, I'm not perfect. I've not arrived. But he doesn't use it as an excuse. He doesn't say, hey, by the way, you know, I'm a Christian. And 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 we're, none of us are perfect. He doesn't use that as an excuse to wallow in his sin or to permit himself to sin or to pretend that it's okay. Instead, we find him pursuing growth. He's running with abandon toward the prize of the upward call of God, of Christ in or, or toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. He is running with abandon after pursuing, or or pursuing the things that he says are already his. Like Paul, I think this is the ultimate point I would have you bring home, and I think it's really the summation of this passage. Like Paul, as we grow in our confidence that Jesus has taken hold of us, we will grow more committed to our pursuit of the prize to which we have been called. As we grow in our confidence that Jesus has taken hold of us, we will grow more committed to our pursuit of the prize to which we have been called. And it's easy for us to put Paul on a pedestal. It's easy for us to look back on Paul and say, "Oh man, this guy—he's—he's he's got it all. He—he he never struggled. He never had a problem." Paul—he pre- he began preaching the gospel immediately after having his eyes illuminated by Christ. He—that this—that this—his blindness is healed, and and something like scales fall away from his eyes, and he. He, he can see, and it, it, the text tells us Acts chapter 9, you can go and read it, he, he gets up and he starts preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. The very thing that he was seeking to persecute people for and imprison people for, he began to preach immediately. Paul's one of the, well, he's the one that corrected Peter, right? So Peter is not, he it, when, when it's just him in Antioch and him and Paul there in Antioch, Peter's there, he's eating the pork and enjoying the bacon and and acting like Gentiles do. And then when people from Jerusalem that come from James show up, P- Peter draws back. Paul's the guy that corrects him. Paul's the guy that rebukes him publicly to his face. And says, this is this out of step with the gospel. He's, Paul's written books of the Bible. And, and probably, I'm, I'm guessing this, I, I, I think this is probably true for most of the people sitting in the room. Paul has been, apart from Jesus, Paul has been more influential in the lives of people than any other Christian that's ever lived. I'm guessing. Because even the pastors that have these great, these great ministries, these far-reaching ministries, who are they referring to? Paul, right? Oh, James, yeah, but but James has written so much less. Uh, how about Luke? Luke wrote a big chunk of the Bible. Yeah, absolutely, we refer to Luke. But But Paul, everybody ends up talking about Paul. Has this massive influence. It's so easy to put him on a pedestal and think, oh man, this guy's got it figured out. To read these words but I'm not perfect. I haven't arrived. See, Paul has never, he's never been ashamed to say, I'm struggling with my old sinful self. Romans 7, this is a disputed passage. I personally believe he's talking about his wrestling with sin as a Christian, but he is, he is talking about the struggle with the flesh and recognizing his own sin. He, he, doesn't, he does what he knows he shouldn't do, but he doesn't always do what he knows he should do. And in the end of that, he calls himself what a wretch I am. Who's going to save me from this body of death? Paul. Man, Paul. This isn't at the beginning. It it not like the day he got saved that he's acting this way. Romans is written somewhere in the middle of his ministry. And he's still wrestling. 1 Corinthians 9, he tells the church that he has to discipline, or, or the language is actually beat his flesh into submission so as to not see himself disqualified. So if he doesn't beat his flesh into submission, what does that mean? If he just lets his own old sinful nature run, what does that mean? He's going to live in such a way that disqualifies him. 2 Corinthians 12, he's, he shares that he's got this thorn in the flesh. And, and, and just, we, we don't know exactly what the thorn in the flesh was. It could have been an emotional issue, could have been a physical issue, could have been, could have, could have been almost anything. doesn't even necessarily, just because it's in this list, I'm not even saying that it's got to be a sinful issue. But there's something that put him in a place that he had to learn that God's grace was sufficient and God's power is made perfect in weakness. But the reason he learned he had it was the point I, reason I'm bringing this point up. You know why God gave it to him? Do you remember why it says that God gave it to him? So that he wouldn't become arrogant because he'd he'd had such powerful and strong revelations. Because he knew. God knew. If I let you be, if I don't afflict you with this and allow this this spirit uh, of the enemy to afflict you in this way, if I don't allow this, your arrogance will run wide. 1 Timothy 1, he confesses that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he's the chief among them. He's the foremost sinner among them. In in, in the light of Christ, Paul was very aware of his own sin. So that even here in this letter, as Paul says, Jesus is my greatest treasure. He has to step back and remind himself and, and his readers, I'm not exactly there yet. I've not attained this perfectly yet. And just consider where he came from. So, so thinking back on Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, where he lays out this resume. I'm, I'm going to read it to you. I don't think the verses are on the screen, but if you have your Bible open, you can just scan right back up there just to the top of this passage and you can see it. His resume, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal of persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Just think about that. This guy actually should be more blameless because of what's going on here. And he stops and he says, but I'm not perfect. Paul had grown in Christ so clearly and so, so much that he was no longer pretending or depending upon these self-righteous works for his righteousness or his blamelessness, his perfection, his completion, but he is able to say, and as a result, there's two things that I think we see happen in this passage. We see Paul's confidence established in something more than, other than his own self-righteous acts, his his living within the law. We see his confidence shaped in something different, and then we see his commitment grow even more. He's even more serious than he was before in pursuit of the things of God. So that's what we're going to look at, Paul's confidence and and, and Paul's um, uh paul's commitment and and like him i just would encourage you we're going to get to this we're going to see his call as well but i'm just going to go ahead and put it back in front of you as we grow in our confidence that jesus has taken hold of us we will grow more committed to our pursuit of the prize to which we have been called and paul's confidence first and foremost is in god's sovereignty paul isn't pursuing jesus or his righteousness or his resurrection because of paul Paul is pursuing Jesus, his righteousness and and his resurrection because of what God has done in him. Look at it again. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ has made me his own. Paul's confidence is in the sovereignty of God's work through Jesus Christ. Jesus takes hold of us. Paul is confident that he is being taken hold of, that he has been taken hold of, by Jesus. And this is why when he goes back, when, when we follow the flow of Philippians, and I guess we could follow it backwards, you go back into the passage where he says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God who works in you to work and to will to his good pleasure. When you go back and you listen and you think about who started this work, who started this work in him, who started this work in us. It's God who starts it and God who finishes it. Jesus takes hold of us. This is Paul's confidence and this is primarily the first place he points that he's going to run the way he runs he's going to pursue the things he pursues because jesus has taken hold of him his next confidence in god's sovereignty i think we see is 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 in the phrase where he comes down and he says i press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of god in christ jesus god awards the prize Paul's responsible to run. Anyone in the race is responsible to run, but God's the one that awards the prize. In fact, God's the one that even says what the prize is. Consider this. When you enter a race, you have to determine if the prize that you're running for is worth running for, right? You have to figure that out, but the prize is determined before you ever even enter the race, right? The prize is out there, and it's not even something, oh, I, 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 I can run for it. I can go for it, but I'm not the one that determines it. I'm not really ultimately the one that determines who gets it. God awards the prize. God, this is a sovereign work of the Father. Jesus takes hold of us, God awards the prize, and God gives us the call. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. All of Paul's life, all of Paul's pursuit, all of Paul's running is in response to God's call. Now, I don't think this is some general call that's out there that just, oh, look at the creation and God's out there. I think this is that effectual call that Paul talks about so often in his letters. He only knows there's a race to run. He only knows that there's a prize to be won. He only runs it because God has placed this call on his life. So he's confident. and, and, And the more he understands this, the more confident he grows in it, the more committed he becomes in the sovereign work that God has begun to do And as a result, he commits himself to that work. Paul's commitment is what? Press on. He says it twice. And so I think that's probably the best way to summarize it is based on his words. First, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Oh, I'm sorry. First in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on. And then he comes back down in verse 14. I press on. Just imagine that, 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 that language. Paul knows and is confident in what God has done. He's confident in, in the sovereign work of God, but he is not in any way ignoring the fact or forgetting the fact that this requires endurance and effort and a, and a pursuing. It's not always going to be easy. And in fact, when I think, when we place this, this wrestling and this pursuit alongside the, the, the war, P- Peter, Peter refers to it as a, a war that's wage, being waged within us. When we, when we place these two things together, I think we realize it's never going to be easy. Because for every good and godly and holy desire I have and you have, We have a godless nature that's seeking to have its own way. So he's going to press on. I'm going to to push forward. I'm going to endure in this race. I'm going to keep on going. Well, what's he pressing on for? First, he says, to, to make it my own. Now, he admits freely, Jesus has made me his own. Jesus has taken hold of me. Jesus has said, I'm his Now, everything Paul's doing is in response to that. But he's seeking to walk in step with it. He's seeking, hey, God says I'm his, I'm going to act like it. God says I belong to him, I'm going to act like he belongs to me. I'm going to make this my own. I'm going to own it. I'm going to make it real in my life, in the way I live my life, in the way I pursue my life, in the way I value the things in my life. I'm going to pursue it in this way. Peter, the same attitude, has the same attitude in 2 Peter chapter. One, as he's writing to the church, he he tells the church some really powerful things. We've been given everything we need for life and godliness. And we love that verse, right? Because it means so much. He didn't just give us a few things. He gave us everything we need for life and godliness. And then he turns uh, in verses 5 through 7 and he says, Now, because you've been given everything, add to your faith virtue, virtue, knowledge. Uh, And he goes through this list of things that we're supposed to be continuing to grow in. In verses 8 and 9, he comes to this place where he says, And this is why you need to keep growing in it. Because if you keep growing in it, then you'll never cease bearing fruit. And if you don't continue growing in it, it's because you've forgotten that your sins are forgiven. But then he says something in verse 10. That, that all of this emulates this same attitude that Paul is, is, is modeling for us here. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. We, we make no bones about it in our church. We, are, we, are, we teach from a, a reformed perspective that God saves us, that we only are ever responding to his calling and his, his effectual calling and his uh uh before the eternity before or i'm sorry before the creation election and all of this work that we are predestined for adoption we make no bones about it we think the bible is very clear about that but that doesn't mean that we then sit around and pretend as if there's nothing to be done brothers be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election for if you practice these qualities you will never fall peter says And that's exactly, I believe that's the same exact idea that Paul has here in this passage. I've been made his. He's taken hold of me. Now I'm going to take hold of him and I'm going to cling to him with everything I am, knowing that I'll never lose hold because he'll never lose hold. Right? His confidence is in Christ. His confidence in having been taken hold of by Jesus. But now, as, as, as he understands that, he doesn't use that as a reason just to wallow out and say, oh, yeah, we'll never be perfect no, I press on. I pursue this. I'm, I'm striving to make it my own. I want my life to be to, to reflect the reality that I've been called righteous. So he presses on to make it his own, and he presses on, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. And it obviously doesn't mean that Paul is forgetting all that came before this moment. Like, oh, it happened yesterday, so I don't even. I just don't pay attention. I've forgotten it. We know that's not true because at the top of this passage, in verse three through or five through six, he lays out a resume of what his past life was. He hasn't forgotten. It's not like it's it's gone from his mind. The forgetting he's talking about is that it, it no longer it no longer identify, identifies him or is allowed to inhibit. Or be the only reason he says he belongs. Past and current sins are not weighing him down with an undue burden of guilt or keeping him from running after Jesus. I I know, I, I know some of you struggle with this deeply. Because you can't forget, you can't believe, you can't trust in. In fact, I was in a conversation earlier this week where, where the person said, I just can't forgive myself. And I know why we say that, and I understand the. The, the idea that's behind that. But, but I don't want you to forget, figure out how to forgive yourself. I want you to fi- figure out how, you, how to trust that you've been so fully and freely forgiven by the gospel of Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, your forgiveness is not better than or more necessary than the forgiveness of God that comes in and through Jesus Christ. And if we're walking around saying, I believe he's forgiven me, but I haven't forgiven myself, and so I'm going to wallow in this a little bit more, what we're essentially saying without saying it is my forgiveness is more important than his. It carries more value than his. I I don't want to dismiss the the importance and the weight that our sin is. And it costs Jesus his life. But I don't want us to assume in any way and walk with this past guilt that we're waiting on some ability to let go of our sin even though we're trusting in our forgiveness. If you have trusted in your forgiveness from Christ Jesus, you set that stuff down at the cross. It is the, it's the scuba on that doesn't have any weight in our life anymore in contrast to what we have in Christ. It is trash. Leave it alone. So Paul forgets it. He sets it aside. Like the writer of Hebrews says, set aside every weight and sin that entangles you. Paul sets it aside. Past and current blessings. He's not forgotten what God has done for him. He he shares his testimony of meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus at least once in his ministry. He doesn't forget what happened. But he doesn't lean into that past and and, and even current blessings and, and allow them to lull him into some sense of complacency or apathy. Oh, I got it all figured out now. I finally arrived. Look at how God's blessed me. I can sit down. I can kick back. I can relax now. Finally. Whew, Lord, you held that one out for me. But finally, I can rest. The day we get to rest is when we walk into his presence and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And every day until then, by faith, we rest in Because he's done the work that's necessary. And he will bless. And he will will challenge. He will rebuke. And he will exhort how he deems necessary to keep us moving towards him. Always pressing on. Always pushing forward. Forgetting what's behind and straining what's, what's, what's ahead of him. The resurrection, eternal life. Having more of Jesus. Knowing him even more. Well, what what about the difficulties he's currently facing? What, what, What if living and doing this and pursuing Jesus with this radical abandon, what if it causes him trouble? That's exactly what has caused him trouble. That's exactly why he finds himself where he finds himself. Because he treasures Christ over everything else. He will pursue Christ over everything else. I mean, just consider, Paul, Paul is not less zealous. Paul is not less committed to some denominational affiliation. Paul is not less committed to a family than he was before. All of that now is just wrapped up in who Jesus is. He is just as zealous. He is just as committed. He is just as single-focused. Only this is what I do. I do nothing else, but I forget what's behind, and I press forward. He is just as committed as he ever was, but every ounce of it finds footing. It finds power in the reality that now, because of Christ, it's going to bear fruit, eternal fruit. So Paul, he's confident in what God has done, and, and, and as a result, he's not less committed. He's as committed or more committed than he ever was before but he's committed to the things that god has done and it would be great if we could look at this as a case study and walk away and say man paul was a good guy i wish i could be more like paul well paul wants that for you too in fact that's his call paul's call think believe do that's how i would summarize what he calls these people to let those of us who are mature think this way, and, and if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you, also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Think, believe, do. He calls them to a mature mindset. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And the word that, that we have translated as "think" is not just have these thoughts floating around in your head. It's have a whole mindset. Have a have this whole perspective, this attitude uh, uh, about the things of the Lord. If you're mature, he says, then you should have this mindset. Now, if you think, this is not the first time he's dealt with that. Back in Philippians 2, when he opens the passage and just before he shows Christ as the most humble man who's ever walked the face of the earth, he shows us or calls the church to have the same mindset. to, To be of one accord and of one mind. It's the same idea. He's just emphasizing it again. That we should all be thinking these ways. That Christ is to be our greatest treasure. And that our confidence is to be in the fact that he has taken hold of us. And that our commitment is to be just like Paul's. To be running after him. In in fact, he's going to say it a bit more explicitly in the passage from next week. Brothers, join in imitating me. Follow my example. Do what I've done. And others who have lived like me, do what they've done. This is what what maturity looks like. I think sometimes we get fooled into thinking that somebody walks around and and knows a lot of Bible verses. or, Or can say a lot of big theological words or has a lot of knowledge. I think that a lot of times we get fooled into thinking they must be really mature. In fact, I think we fool ourselves into it sometimes. And so we run after Bible studies just so I can have more knowledge. No, I'm not against Bible studies. Don't hear me saying that. I'm all for studying the Bible. But knowledge for knowledge's sake, that's all it's going to do is produce a bunch of arrogant people. A bunch of puffed up people who walk around bowing their chest out at everybody and they can win biblical arguments. But there's a a way in which this knowledge is to be applied in our life. It's supposed to affect everything about us. The reality is, is that not only are we supposed to think this way, we're to believe this way. That's why I think this whole passage, his call to us is not just think about something, it's believe it so deeply, not just hold these theoretical thoughts, but have your mind renewed by it so that you perceive the world in a whole new way. Believe it, think it, believe it, have this mature mindset. So that it shapes not just how you consider things, but also how you act in the world. But this would be a growing faith. It's not supposed to just be the way we think. It's supposed to be a growing faith. I love this phrase. It almost feels like a throwaway phrase, but there's so much here. Let those of us who are mature think this way. So the mature that he's talking about are these people who, whose lives have been shaped by what they know to be true and now they're living it out and there's this way in which, which their confidence and their commitment all match and they're walking, uh, it, 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 they're walking in step with the gospel, if you will. They're pursuing Christ as the greatest treasure. But then he says, and if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. It's supposed to be this this way in which we're growing into the faith, and the reality is none of us are perfect, none of us have arrived, and every one of us have places. We have sacred cows that need to be kicked on a little bit so that we can see the sacred cow and walk away from the sacred cow. We need to have our thinking challenged. Let's imagine the, the world in which everybody is only your Facebook friend, in which they affirm everything you think and do and say. Imagine a world in which no one ever tells you you're wrong about something or you're valuing something too much, or you're considering something in error is that a good place for you to be (laughs) it's an easier place to be but it's not going to lead us any good i heard a story i don't know that this is true but i heard a story that some of the reasons why michael jackson and prince went kind of nuts the way they did towards the end of their life is because no one was ever willing to tell them no because they were so full of themselves. I don't know if this is true. This is just a report that I read and heard. I, heard, I, don't, I don't remember. But that no one, because they, of who they were and who they'd become, and they, as popular as they, as they were, no one ever told them, that's crazy, don't do that. Nobody has a symbol for a name. Quit doing surgery on your family. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to be rude about the struggles they had. I love you enough to tell you that doesn't look good, right? Like somebody, but no, I've I've read, I studied, I I didn't study, I saw the article. No one was willing to because of who they were and they were so popular. Well, they must be right. The beauty of it is, is that we should be in this place where we're able to hear things that we don't agree with yet. That God brings about and helps us understand and helps us realize, God will reveal that to you also. So, rather than being upset that somebody kicked on one of your sacred cows, now I don't know that you were. I don't, that, 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 I'm not trying to impose anything or implement anything or push anything there, based on using uh, the illustration earlier. I'm just saying, rather than being upset, maybe, just maybe, you need to consider the scripture in light of. What you're frustrated by or what you're upset by. And and, and see, does God conform you and teach you and reveal to you, you've been thinking in error. It's beautiful because it frees us then to allow one another to be at a place where we don't see everything eye to eye. We don't all value Christ the same. We're not all at the same position of maturity. But we can free one another to grow up in this faith to love one another even past some of the differences and the distinctions of, of the way we perceive things. Because somewhere deep inside every one of us, and I know this is true about the people in our church, every one of us know that Jesus is the truest treasure. We can all affirm that. But we're all living it out differently, aren't we? We're all dependent on things a little bit differently, and we're pursuing things other than Him differently. God will reveal this to us. So we've got this mature mindset that that leads us to a a growing faith so that we think and believe, and the final thing is do. It's faithful action only. Again, he he uses this thing, it is a priority word, like set this out first and foremost. Only this. Hold true to what we have attained. Don't be Peter. Who, when he's in Antioch with Paul by himself, sits down and eats the pork and the bacon. But when the people from Jerusalem show up, steps back and pretends that's not a good thing. Don't live hypocritically. Don't be a hypocrite. That's what he's after. If you say that you've been taken hold of by Jesus, you take hold of Jesus. If you are confident in the sovereign work of God, then get up and put it into practice. The, the phrase from a few weeks ago is that the, the thing that God has produced in his people, his children his, his people are to put into practice in their life this faithful action that holds true to what we've been given to what we've attained so that we don't step backwards so that we don't so, so, so that we don't get distracted from God's glory by things that are trash in comparison to his treasure, so that we don't pursue more from the world than we can from god's goodness and, and, and so that we don't trust more in something else other than God's grace and power. As we grow in our confidence in Jesus, that Jesus has taken a hold of us, Paul is saying, now grow in your commitment to pursue the prize of which you have, to which you've been called. And while we're growing into it, let's not slip backwards. Let's not, let's not take backward steps and run back to legalism or, or apathy and just wallowing in sin. Forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead. The the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So what is it? What are the goals that you have in life? What have you set out in front of yourself for for this week? This year, this this way in which we approach the world. "I i got these goals, i got to achieve these things. I'm not suggesting that we set those things down completely and we don't achieve those things. But if we're pursuing them as the great treasure, then they're robbing us of the opportunity of seeing that Christ is the true treasure. This is a great goal to pursue. Only hold true to what you have attained. Jesus has taken hold of you. So in every aspect of your life, from your parenting, to your, to your fellowshipping, to your praying, to your, um, to, to, to your uh, I think I pushed on, uh, uh, voting, to, to your doing a job in the world. All of these things, do them, appreciate them for what they are, but never, never, never let go of the fact that Jesus has taken hold of you. And the greatest goal we have is to, to, to make it our own, to not lose what we have attained in him. Let's pray.